0: Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, Read Daniel chapter 6, again, in the Church Bible, it's on page 618. It's about Daniel in the den of lions. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent finally these men said we will find any we will never find any basis for charges against this man daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his god so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said may king darius live forever the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next thirty days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of your exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you a stone was bored and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, And the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must bear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian.
1: Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through it. And Lord, as uh, as 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 we come today, as to come before your word, we pray that uh, we'll humble ourselves before it. That your Spirit will move our hearts and be inspired, but not only inspired, empowered by it as well, to be a people that will stand firm, knowing that you are a a great God, a God who is sovereign, powerful, and in control. Uh, So much so that you've even. Uh, rescued um, this man Daniel from the den of lines, and I pray, Lord, that this will really encourage us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I stumbled across an article this last week. Uh, it was from Medium. A Medium article 101 unpopular opinions, the ultimate must see list. Original post ripped from everybody, right? And I read it, and uh, uh, unpopular opinions are always quite funny, right? Because it's, you know, you don't have that opinion, someone else does, and you're like, what the heck? Why...? So I felt really attacked when I was reading through this list. I read a few of them, and some of them made me laugh as well. But I want to read to you just a few of them. The first one, Beyonce is overrated. Peter's nodding, but I, I read that, and I was like, are you serious? Like, Who could think that? Who actually thinks that? But I guess that's why it's unpopular opinion. That's why it's number one on the list. I'm like, yeah, because no one thinks that. Okay, can't be right. Uh, the second one, David Attenborough is overrated. Nothing more than glorified voiceover artists. Oh, that's harsh, but sort of true. Strawberries are disgusting. Who actually thinks strawberries are disgusting in this room? Exactly. Exactly. Right? Unpopular opinion. I I was feeling really uncomfortable as I kept reading through this. It's like, I've got a few more on the on the on the screen for you. Star Wars isn't very good. Number 11, Chinese food is horrible, come on. Mashed potatoes, I love mashed potatoes. The most disgusting thing ever invented. Pugs are ugly, not cute, yeah, sort of true. Um, brown cars, that was it, that was number 70, brown cars. It is, it is unpopular, right? Now, some of us, we agree with uh, these unpopular opinions because you share that view and that's fine. Um, it's not fine about the Beyonce thing, but it's fine if you share an unpopular opinion or one of the other ones. Uh, but jokes aside, right, let me add another one to this list. If it was going to 102, this is what I think would be another unpopular opinion. Christianity is helpful for today's society. I don't think that's a very popular opinion in today's world. And I, I know for us, us here, who are many of us who are Christians here, uh, would probably think it is helpful for today's world, but many who aren't uh, would probably think that's a very unpopular opinion. Don't you think? And wouldn't you agree when you look around the world today, uh, especially in our country, that people are increasingly seeing Christianity as a roadblock, a roadblock to progress, a stain on our culture, blamed as a reason for hatred and intolerance, or an, just an obstacle to our human freedoms? I mean, it's not all bad. You don't experience a sort of pushback when you when you share your Christian view, perhaps in the private sphere, in the private sphere, but in the public sphere, aren't we reading about the stories in the news when, if you're a Christian, you're going to be voted as unpopular, out of date. You're gonna be irrelevant, simply just not helpful to the public discussion of progress for today's world. Uh, some of you guys might remember uh, a friend of ours, Stephen McAlpine, a pastor from Perth, who came and he preached a few years back. Uh, he just released a book in this last year called Being the Bad Guys. It won Australian Christian Book of the Year. I, I highly recommend it. Um, but in this book, he writes about how Christians were once accepted and helpful, but now have, and, and were, were, were tolerated in society, but now have been moved to being viewed as the bad guys, being the bad guys, living on this side of history where Christianity is no longer an option but a problem and even dangerous to society. In the public sphere, that's what the opinion is. What will it look like to stand firm in our faith in a world that thinks of Christians and Christianity in this way? How can we stand firm for our faith, trusting God in a world that feels like we're standing in the den of lions, ready to get ripped apart? It might not feel that extreme yet in Brisbane, in your workplace, in your universities, but will you be prepared when the time comes? For those who aren't Christians in the room here today and you're investigating Christianity, what if that unpopular opinion about Christianity is actually true? Will you be open to see the goodness and impact of it on our society? We're in Daniel chapter six day, and if you grew up in church and went to Sunday school, you would know the story. It's very familiar, isn't it? Uh, but this whole idea of being in the den of lions has become such a, it's such a widely used phrase. You know, I looked it up on a dictionary, online dictionary. It says it's being in a place or state of extreme disadvantage or hostility. And we have got to be thinking about this. If we're going to be living in a world where people are going to be hostile to Christianity, if that's the direction we're heading in, how will we stand firm? Chapter six. Let's get into it. Have your Bibles open and follow along because we're going to uh, look at different chunks throughout this chapter. And then we're going we're to comment on it a bit, understand it, and then think about how it applies. So chapter 6, this is actually going to be the last chapter in the book of Daniel where we hear about his life in Babylon. Uh, it, the, the narrative changes after this. After chapter 6, from chapter 7 onwards, it gets really wild. It goes into visions and prophecies, and we're going to try and figure that out in the next few weeks together as well. We're going to finish all of Daniel in the next few weeks. But here in chapter 6, it's the last of the narrative, the storytelling of what Daniel experienced in his life in Babylon. Daniel's an old man at the stage persia has conquered babylon we're told this king darius is in charge now you might get confused hearing that name king darius because in chapter one uh, i don't know if you remember you can flip back if you want but daniel remained in babylon we're told until the first year of king cyrus of persia and if you look into the history books you only hear about a king cyrus who who took over babylon not a king darius but don't let that detail confuse you all right darius was a man uh most possibly, the most likely theory was he was a man appointed to be king over this region of Babylon, appointed by Cyrus, who was the king of the larger Persian Empire that ruled during this time. So King Darius is in charge over Babylon. It opens with this context saying that Darius had appointed 120 satraps. Uh, another word which really means a governor or a local leader, a satrap, and then three administrators over those 120 satraps. Daniel's being, Daniel is one of those three administrators. We're told that Daniel has so much wisdom and integrity, exceptional qualities, and we're told the king wanted him to essentially be the highest, the, the two see, second in charge of the whole kingdom. Now this made the satraps jelly, right? They were jealous from verse 4. This is what we read. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, Will we never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God? Daniel had so much integrity. He had so much integrity as a man that they found no corruption in him. You, you want to find a reason to get this guy, but he's super nice. He's super friendly. He's super loved by everyone, even the king. He's clean as a whistle. He, he, he's the man on the street, uh, the man that you see on the street, the same man behind closed doors. That's his integrity. Have you ever met someone like that? You know, they're just so good and you just want to punch them in the face because they're just, oh, they're just nice all the time. How can you find a charge against them? But if you've been keeping up in the first six chapters, you'll also know something, won't you? That God is actually working Daniel too. God is at work in promoting him, working through him, allowing him to have favor with the king. Daniel's, yes, one, on one hand, he's a man of integrity, a man of faith, but on the other hand, he's a vessel, isn't he, used by God to honor God's name. Yes, he's a man of great character. That can't be faulted. And in, that, in their jealousy of Daniel being this Jewish guy who's risen up in the ranks of the Persian Empire, there's this racism there. They want to find a way to get him. They don't want him to be in charge. And so they conjure up this plan to get him in trouble. Uh, and to get him in trouble is to find a way for his faith in God to come into conflict with the law of the land. Let's get the king to make a law, a new decree that anyone who prays to any any god or other uh, human being during the next thirty days, except to the king himself, shall be thrown into the lion's den. It's very clever, isn't it? Like, let's find a law that they we can trap Daniel in, and they know Daniel's not going to betray their god, his god. Here's the ironic thing about this: the laws that king enacts, the kings enact in the ancient Middle East. Once that decree is enacted. The king himself can't repeal it, right? He can't alter it. They can play God. They can set laws for the whole land to follow, but even they have to stand under the law. Everyone has to follow this law. Once it's enacted, they aren't above it. They're subject to it. It's actually a really smart idea because kings couldn't just make arbitrary laws on the whim, right? If they felt something, they were upset about something, they are going to make a law. say so, us um, if they lost a game of FIFA on the PlayStation, right? If you guys know what FIFA is a soccer game. If they lost a the game, they said, I'm gonna ban FIFA for the next, you know, forever. No one's allowed to play it. And then two weeks later, oh, I feel like playing FIFA. Let's repeal that law. It's this type of arbitrary laws, right? Uh, a girl rejected me, so no one's, allowed to, no one's allowed to date girls anymore and the whole land has to stop dating girls, right? Like, it's something stupid like that. But this is, it's good for that to happen. A law where the king can't repeal it or change it, right? And that's what happens. Not only that, but it's also strange. He makes a law that only lasts for how long? 30 days. Why? Why is it a law that only lasts for... Why doesn't it last for forever? Worship and pray me as if I'm your God, but you only have to do it for 30 days. It's, just, it's just like a free subscription to Amazon for 30 days, right? <laughs> Try it out. You know, If you like it, get used to it, then yeah, you don't realize you subscribed to annual membership and now you're paying and you can't get out. But that's what it's like. Maybe. Maybe that, that's what the king is thinking. Just let's get all the colonies into order. I'm the king now over this entire empire that stretches across the Middle East to Greece. You'll learn to worship me for the next 30 days, more than your own gods. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Now, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because he's putting this age-old philosophical question to the test. Right? Machia, Machiavelli, the philosopher in the Renaissance period, if you know that name, Machiavelli, he asks the question, the, a leader, as a leader, is it better to be loved or is it better to be feared? Now, if you've watched The Office, Michael Scott, I'd like, to, I'd like people to fear how much they love me. That's what he says. But, it, but in, the, in terms of philosophy, Machiavelli came to the conclusion it's better to be feared than to be loved because fear means control. This tyrant king wants to establish his control. It sounds good. It feels good. It must be good. But that's actually really bad logic. He'll realize that this is actually a bad idea. Because what happens to our, to our main man, Daniel? Who the king really likes, who the king really respects. Daniel does precisely what the law says he can't do. From verse ten, let's read it. it. Says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now you think he'd close the windows and do it in private. Uh, But what does it say? Three times a day he did this, on his knees, praying, giving thanks to God, with the windows open, facing Jerusalem. This is what a man who loves God does. He gets on his knees, he prays, he thanks God. And he faces Jerusalem, um, probably perhaps because that's where he he yearns to be, where, where Israel's promised land and where the temple of God is situated, even though it's destroyed at this point. It's where God promised he'd dwell with his people. He could, have, he could have just closed the windows, he could have done it in privacy, just prayed once a day, But he's not, and he's not doing it to flaunt his rebellion. He's not trying to stir the pot with the king. He's doing it because it says this is what he's always done. That integrity, we're hearing it again, aren't we? This is a man, he's probably in his 80s by now. But we're given a snapshot into his character, into his faithfulness towards God. And we should be all thinking, man, will I at that age be like that? I hope so. I hope I'm going to spend the next 80 years thinking, or 60, whatever it is, on fire, as passionate about God as I am in my youth. Daniel, he keeps it up, even in in, an older age. Prays three times a day on his knee, giving thanks to God. Will I love Jesus more and more each day, consistently praying to him every day on my knees like Daniel does here? Will integrity and faithfulness be what you're known for, even in 60 years' time? 70 years, time, 80 years, time, however long we live, we get to live by God's grace. I hope so. You see, this is Daniel's lifestyle. This is his habit. This is part of who he is. He fearlessly, confidently, and consistently prays three times a day and on his knees to God, giving thanks, just as he has done before. That's what the text says for us. So these satraps, they spy on him. Literally, says they went as a group, like a group of thugs, going to check if he's doing precisely what they predicted he would do disobey the law there he was praying they run to the king they dub on him "Uh, you didn't you made this law didn't you if they disobey this law then they'll be thrown to the lions isn't that right the king said yeah i did i did do that and they said well guess what that jewish guy daniel from judah he seems to have ignored you the law and ignored the law that you've enacted he still prays to his god And again, this this should surprise us, but what happens? The king is greatly distressed, it says. He was so determined to rescue Daniel, he made every effort to save him. But, alas, he had no choice. He caved under the pressure of the people. He's the king, he can do whatever he wants, but he caved. and And he had to do what the law says. Anyone who disobeyed would be thrown to the lions. That's what happens to Daniel. Now, rather than hearing about Daniel's fear or anxiety going to the lions, what do we hear? Instead, we hear that the king couldn't sleep. He's the one who's anxious at this moment. Daniel faces his, his, his punishment. Daniel faces his, his, uh, his fate with confidence. Because we don't hear about him being anxious and nervous. He goes there. He faces it. And so the king runs to the den the next morning. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually there we hear it again continually just as you've always done continually there it is you just, just as you always done. has this god been able to rescue you from the lions daniel answered may the king live forever my god sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions; they've not hurt me because i was found innocent in his sight nor have i ever done any wrong before you your majesty And the king verse 23 was overjoyed gave orders to lift daniel out of the den and when daniel was lifted from the den no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Just in case people think that the lions weren't hungry or whatever, after we read this, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in, thrown into the lion's bed, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor, of the, the lions overpowered them and crushed their bones. The lions were hungry. They used to eat Daniel. Right? And yet, yeah, it's sad. It's brutal to hear about wives and children being slaughtered as well. But that's the type of punishment that happens in the ancient world under these tyrant kings. No one is spared for their deceit. And as for Daniel, an angel of God shuts the mouths of the lions so Daniel wasn't harmed one bit. He was delivered by God. Daniel was found innocent. But it's it's so much more than that, isn't it? Verse 23, it's because Daniel trusted in God. Deliverance came for him because he feared God more than he feared men. He prayed boldly to God just as he always did because he knew whether life or death awaits him, God is good and will deliver him, whether it's in this life or the next. And so this chapter finishes with the pagan king praising and worshipping and speaking, speaking highly of our God. How good is this? Let's read it again. Verse 25. King, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I love that. Uh, The chapter begins with what? A decree, doesn't it? A decree to worship who? The king. To pray to the king. How does it finish? With a decree. A decree to worship who? To worship God. The Persian king, Darius, with awe and wonder, proclaims this God is sovereign, powerful, eternal, faithful to his people, the saviour who rescues, ultimately worthy of worship. Don't pray to the king anymore. Pray to this God of Daniel, who is far greater than any human king. And again, what are we seeing repeated in the book of Daniel? Who is the one in control? Who is the one who is sovereign and powerful over human kings and kingdoms, even over the mouths of lions? This book of Daniel isn't so much about Daniel, is it? Yes, he's courageous and he's got integrity and faith, but it's not so much about the kings of Babylon and Persia either. It's a book about the God we know and worship. Daniel's about God. It's a story about what he does in the life of Babylon, Daniel's life in Babylon. It's to tell the reader, whether you're an ancient Israelite or you're a 21st century Christian living here in Australia, that God is in control. Even in the moments you might feel like you're standing in the den of lions. Even in those moments when you feel like the world is against you for your faith. And when going to work or to university feels like you're living in Babylon, where it'll take courage and strength to be a Christian in a world that tells you not to be a Christian. And while it's so easy to make Daniel the hero, What this story should do for us is actually point us to someone greater. For us who have been given the bigger picture and knows what happens in history, this story actually points us to Jesus, doesn't it? See the parallels in the story. There was a group of men that conspired to get Daniel killed. Daniel had no fault against him that was worthy of execution. And when faced with the threat of death, Daniel, what does he do? He prays. Daniel was innocent and he was thrown to the lions. Isn't that the story of Jesus? Jesus had a group of men, the Jewish council, conspire against him to get him killed. He had no fault or was guilty of breaking any law worthy of death. He was brought before an impotent ruler, Pontius Pilate, who, like Darius, caved into the pressure. He had no power to release him, even though he knew he was innocent. But while Daniel was rescued by an angel, the lions tore Jesus apart. Jesus, on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22. What does it say? It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Further down in Psalm 22, that very same psalm, it says, Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me." Jesus is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. He was perfect in holiness. He was without sin, so much more innocent than Daniel ever was. But unlike Daniel, no angel came to shut the mouths of lions. Why? Because God allowed Jesus to be torn apart. He went into the den of lions. He went down into the pit. He knew he was going there. And he went there for you and for me. Daniel, yeah, he was rescued. He came out of the pit. But he came out of the pit. He came out alone, didn't he? Without a scratch. But for Jesus, after three days, he came forth from the tomb so that he could lead generations and generations of others out of that very death that we as his people were once destined to face. Jesus led that. He stood and he let the lions devour him so that you and I wouldn't have to face the jaws of of death itself, of eternal death. We can stand, rescued, redeemed, because we have a better Daniel. We have Jesus who paved the way for us to eternal life. And so, yes, we might not get delivered from the den of lions in our world today. We might face ridicule for our faith, we might even have our lives threatened. But Jesus promises us that there will be a deliverance from the eternal death that we face without God. Faith in Him, by His grace, well, by His love for us. There is now no longer any condemnation for my sin. Jesus took the judgment and punishment and bore my sin on, on, on my behalf. So I don't have to fear the lion's Then I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. For the Lord is with me. He's, he's my strength. His rod and His staff, they comfort me. Now, I said this a few weeks ago in Paul's words to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How do I stand up in a world that tells me I'm the bad guy for being a Christian? It's to look to Jesus, who led the perfect life before me and died on my behalf. I can thank God and live consistently, courageously for God because Jesus went into the lion's den before me. He will preserve my soul even if I have to face the lions today. But you know what? Let's be honest. The truth is, there'll be so many times you and I will struggle to have courage. There'll be so many times where instead cowardice or indifference will be our tune. At times we'll fear man more than we'll fear God. There'll be times where we will feel defeated. You know what? We can get back up. Jesus says, you're loved, you're forgiven. You're not always going to succeed, but you can get back up. And you can look to Jesus as your model of courage. You can look to the cross. You can see how your Lord, in love, had courage to die for you and for me. And with that, you can feel empowered to face another day in Babylon. To live another day with new morning mercies that empower you to stand firm in the face of a culture that tells you to sit down and stop praying. Will that be what our life looks like? You might not feel like we're in a world that's hostile against Christianity yet. You might not feel like you're in the lion's den. Your friends know that you're a Christian. They're cool with it. Your colleagues at work don't have an issue with it. Even your family, yeah, they're all right with it. They support you. But maybe you need to begin asking what your life of faith looks like. Do people know your character? Do people know you're a man or woman of integrity? That You practice what you preach, what you believe. Daniel prays three times a day. But do you even pray? Do you have a consistent prayer life, a consistent spiritual life where, where church, Family, Bible, prayer, they're staples in the everyday life. Yeah, I'm a pastor, and so far in Brisbane at least, right? I haven't had extreme experiences of hostility when I tell people I'm a Christian. They might say a few negative words to me, like, wow, you believe in that stuff? So perhaps that's your experience too. Maybe you haven't had negative experiences yet, but maybe we need to start asking ourselves, maybe we're not even trusting God in the first place. Maybe that's where we need to start. Maybe we're the ones who are conforming like the rest of the world. Our worship is given to the kings of culture instead of given to God. And sure, Christian by title, but indistinguishable to the rest of the world. Standing for nothing instead of standing for something because we don't want to stand out for our faith. Maybe for you, you need to figure out which God you're truly worshipping. Is it the God of the Bible? Or is it the God of comfort and sex and money and culture? Doesn't Daniel show us that a life lived under God is one of consistency, one of prayer, one of integrity? But also let me encourage you to seek that life out. You see, one day you might be talking to someone in your workplace, in your social circles, and they might ask you about your faith, about Christianity. How will you respond? You see, Daniel's story isn't just one of courage. That's what we're taught from young. It's just, you know, be courageous like Daniel. It's actually about one of consistency. He was always going to be prepared for that day. Because he always prayed, he always trusted in God. Do you want to be prepared for the day hostility comes to your doorstep? How are you going to be prepared? Start fortifying yourself now. Fortifying yourself. You know what does that? What does that picture give you? Uh, you know those games that you get on your iPad or your iPhone, um, tower of defense games. Have you guys ever who played a tower defense game before in their life? You guys know what I mean by that. Some of you guys do, but if you don't know what that means, it's like there's enemies that come through this sort of course. And you've got to build all these towers and arches around the course and stop them from coming through this gauntlet, right? Tower of defense. You're building a defense, fortifying yourself, your territory. Isn't that what this looks like? That's what I pictured when I read this. Hostility, right? They might, it might not be here yet. It might, have, might not be on your doorstep. But think about how fast our world is moving. Start now. Be someone who stands firm in your faith, consistent in conviction, courageous, because you're gonna do, uh, you're going to do what you've always done. Pray, read your Bible, go to church, repent of your sin, love people, share Jesus with people. Do it as you've always done. Start now. Fortify yourself with this life of consistency and integrity so that when it does come, your courage will be your habit. It'll be your default. It'll be the lifestyle you've always lived. And you won't be surprised. Where is is our courage and strength found? It'll be seen in continuing on doing what we've always done. Living the Christian life day, day in and day out, continually worshipping God like Daniel, just as he's always done. But perhaps this sounds really hard. You don't know where to start. Come before God. I ask the question, is God really worth it to you? Is he really great? To see God is so, that is so much bigger than the culture we live in. Literally, it, it, the culture changes from generation to generation. Yet it's still what we worship. Yet God is eternal and unchanging. The culture's demands and expectations, they literally shift from generation to generation. Ten years ago it was cool to do this, now it's not cool to do this. Yet we still worship it, we do whatever the culture tells us to do. We're bombarded by everything around us that tells us to worship the culture, but come before God and see how big and great he is. Here's the thing, Daniel was faced with this problem. Jesus too was faced with this problem. Will I follow the demands of men, or will I follow the God who I worship? Every day, that's the battle for our hearts, isn't it? Every day, we have to reclaim our hearts and align ourselves with you. Because honestly, you're going to be, if you're just going to go with the, with the, 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 the current, you're just going to float downstream with the culture. Uh, I mentioned this the other day in my MCG, that Social Dilemma documentary. If you ever seen that on Netflix? It's about how we're shaped. It's about how we're th- our thoughts and our ideas, our desires, it's all shaped by what we see on our screens. We don't even realize it. We're shaped by our phones. We're shaped by what culture around us tells us. We live in the 21st century so that how we live is all shaped by being someone living in the 21st century. That's just the way life is. We're all products of our environment, aren't we? And maybe unknowingly we submit to the demands of men and the culture without questioning where our allegiance even lies. Will we just go along with the flow of culture or will we stand firm for the one who is worthy of our allegiance? See, Daniel saw God as bigger, bigger than King Darius, bigger than the law that King Darius set. He obeyed God. We see this in the New Testament too. In the book of Acts, after Jesus' resurrection, it's really interesting, his followers, the apostles, they're going out, they're preaching, they're telling people uh, about the gospel of Jesus. They get arrested for doing that. They're thrown into jail, and then they get released, and upon release, they go back into the temple courts, and what do they do? They preach again. They preach about Jesus. They get arrested again. And then when they're arrested again, they get questioned, why are you doing this again? And this is what they said, Acts 5.29. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Your fearlessness in faith will come only when you start seeing God as bigger than the taunts and threats of human beings. Friends, hold on to this truth. In Jesus, he preserves our souls. He's given freedom and security for eternity. Courage will come when you're convicted of that truth. So convicted that you, like many other Christians, are willing to die for that truth. I came across this quote by Napoleon Bonaparte, right the, the French rule in the 1800s. I love this quote. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genes upon force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. How powerful is that quote? In our world today, in the West, we're not worried yet about death, are we? For being Christians. We're not worried about imprisonment even, for sharing Jesus in your workplace. You're not thinking that I'm going to get go to jail for this. But there are parts of the world right now, today, that are ruled by dictators and governments that forbid Christianity, you could be executed for being a Christian. You might, you would, you would get imprisoned. And you hear the stories that come out of the persecuted church in these countries. They stand firm. Because they know while they might lose their very lives, they've got eternity secured for them in heaven with God. Man, it's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Would you be willing to die for Jesus? Would you be willing to go to prison for Jesus? simply for doing what you've always done, like prayer, like going to church, like read your Bible. There are Christians today who have to seriously ask that question and face that reality every day. Who are living in Babylon. But they can because they know God is bigger than the taunts and threats of men. Prison is temporary. Death is swift. Heaven is eternal. So what have I suggested so far? Create habits, consistency of living out your faith. Start today to fortify yourself. Secondly, see God as big, trusting that he's greater and has, will ultimately deliver us. But lastly, let me suggest this. When we do stand firm in our faith, when we do stand firm, in, uh, let's do it in our actions and speech. In a world where they think you're one of the bad guys, let it be so attractive. Do it in a way that's so attractive that they'll want to know about this Jesus that you worship. Right? Again, back to that book I mentioned earlier, Steve McAlpine, Being the Bad Guys, he says this, be repellently attractive. Repellently attractive. That sounds like two different words, right? <laughs> In one sense, they'll be repelled. Simply knowing that you're a Christian, oh, yuck, you're a Christian. That's what they'll think. But at the same time, let's be so attracted to, to them. Let them be so attracted by us because our life is seasoned with love and grace and justice and kindness and patience. The very values that make Jesus so attractive. And there are stories that I've heard that have come out of the workplace. Christians who, when they've been approached, uh, they're approached, and a colleague at work will open up their heart to them, pour out their heart to them, because they can evidently see that the Christian in the workplace has integrity. That Christian in the workplace won't participate in the workplace gossip, but they'll be gentle, sensitive, understanding, and caring. Don't you want to be that person in the workplace? The one who has integrity and character? Friends, the world is watching. You have the opportunity to both stand for Jesus and promote the gospel of grace and love that comes with it, even if they think you're the bad guy. Honestly, I don't want to dilute it as well. I want to equip you for tomorrow, for another day where you'll be living in Babylon. In the past few years, I've been hearing and reading true stories that are coming out of our very own country of people who are in their workplaces, in their universities, who have faced real trouble for sharing their faith, sharing their opinion of what they believe, what they're convicted of. A guy called Josh in one of Australia's universities, um, he was with a friend of his at uni who was stressed, his friend was stressed, and he offered to pray for her, which she accepted with thanks. She was an atheist. Other students saw that, reported him to the university, and he was suspended for student misconduct. He was ordered to do fortnightly counseling before returning back to university. This is a true story that's happened a couple of years ago. Security guards were even ordered to remove him off the grounds if he stepped foot on the university grounds for praying for someone else in the university in Australia. It had to go to court, and it got repealed eventually. But money had to go towards that, right, to go to court that's just one of the stories that has been made public. There are others. People have been fired from their jobs in companies when they were asked about their opinions on certain current affairs. Safe schools perhaps, or or pride marches, whatever it might be. People who were asked questions, they didn't go out looking for trouble, they were asked questions, they answered honestly in line with their faith. Not trying to push their views onto anyone else, not trying to cause division or hatred in the company, but merely answering questions that pertain to their faith, their perspective. And we know how how easy it can... I mean, you could share a Bible verse on your social media account. Something about your faith on Instagram or Facebook. And you'll get in trouble for it these days. Your boss might find it and question you about it. Uh, A prime example of that was what happened to a few years ago, Israel Folau, the NRL player. You guys might have remembered that. He was so cancelled for that. Like, He he lost his contract with um, Rugby Australia because of him sharing a Bible verse on his social media account. This is happening in our world, happening in our very cities of Australia. If it hasn't already happened to you already. And Daniel, he wasn't out looking for trouble. He he wasn't trying to force his views onto anyone. He just stood firm for what he believed. He trusted God. He did what he always did. To be courageous in the future is to begin with consistency today. If we can't stand up for Jesus when we're still safe to do so, I guarantee you, you won't be standing for Jesus if it becomes unsafe to do so. Start now. Let's fortify ourselves with our faith and trust God. Trust in the security and peace you have in Jesus. Because tomorrow you're going back to Babylon. And yes, you might have to stand for your God when your boss is pressuring you to do, everything, to do what everyone else in the company is doing. And you'll be threatened. It might come up as a red flag in your yearly review. You might get threatened for having Christian worldview. But you might have... yeah. but that might happen. You might have to stand firm in your faith when your boyfriend or girlfriend is pressuring you to do something that they claim everyone else is doing in relationships, why can't you? But it's against your faith. You might have to stand firm in those moments. You might have to stand firm when everyone else around you has a differing opinion to voluntary assisted dying, sex or gender or abortion, or whatever other controversial issues in the public arena today. And that's going to that's gonna be particularly hard because I know a lot of you guys are in the medical field. Be wise, yes. Be careful with your words, yes. And maybe it's finding a space to share your views outside of the workplace, whatever, over lunch, but I'm not sure. We can't be naive, though, can we? We have to be prepared. There are real consequences today. You might get reported. You might get suspended. You might get fined. You might need to find money for legal fees. You might even get arrested simply for having a view that is not in line with the law of the land. But if you are thrown to the lines from doing simply what you've always been doing in your faith, I do hope and pray, and I do this—I pray for myself all the time, that I'll be brave enough to face it. There are followers around the world today facing their execution, their imprisonments for their faith. But we're empowered by knowing the crucified Savior who's gone before us. We can face our future with integrity and consistency of prayer and dependence on God, being confident that we did it in the most winsome, attractive, compelling, loving, and most gracious way we could for the sake of his glory there. How will you stand? How will you stand firm in a world that's watching? Let's pray. And Father, we do uh, thank you that you're a God who protects, a God who rescues, a God who's eternal and powerful and majestic. And we thank you that, that you in your greatness and your goodness has welcomed us into a relationship with you. That Jesus went into the den of lions before us. He was torn apart by the lions so that we could have life, so that we could know you. So that we could have the promise of eternity in our hearts. Lord, help us to hold on to that truth that you're a big God, a great and good God. You're greater than the threats of men that we face in this world, the threats of culture that tells us we shouldn't be Christians, we shouldn't believe in this stuff. Help us, Lord, to be brave and courageous because we're, we're living out the faith that you called us to by merely just being consistent with prayer, with, with our relationship with you, with knowing the scriptures and, and worshipping you in our lives. Help us to be a people that stand firm because we have a God who is so much greater and we have our confidence in our courage rested in the gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray for that for, for the men and women here today in the room. As we go out into our worlds, as we think about uh, our workplaces, in our universities, opportunities that you give us to speak up for our faith, help us to be brave, courageous people, knowing that you're in control, just like Daniel did. Would you pray this Lord, um, yeah, uh, in your gracious son's name. Amen.